0: Well, here in this first week of Advent, as you are making your plans for Christmas, I do want to be a, um, a gospel voice crying out in the wilderness. When you look out the next several weeks, you'll notice one glaring reality. Christmas will fall on a Sunday this year, and that comes with both a unique challenge and a unique opportunity. Perhaps you might ask, will we have church on Christmas? I'm not going to answer that but I am going to ask that question with more theological precision. Let's just replace the term have church and the term Christmas with more precise theological language. Will we gather on the Lord's Day for the celebration of the Lord's coming? Perhaps that question answers itself. This is both a challenge and an opportunity. The challenge I think is to not float with the cultural current and ignore the gathering of the saints. Christmas is a busy time, but we are busy people. And when things get busy, we shirk things that we see as optional. Another challenge is simply the cultural air that we breathe. In our day, Christmas is more of a cultural holiday with family traditions than a fundamentally religious holiday with spiritual significance. That is the challenge, but therein lies the great opportunity before us. Some of the cultural trappings are fun and helpful. The stage looks wonderful. The foyer looks great. The the windows look great. Jordan Kregel did an amazing job, as she always does there. And the gift of family is among the best gifts that God gives us. This season, I invite you, I ask you, I I challenge you to treasure your time together with your family, those who are given to you or those who you've chosen over the years. But we have a God-given opportunity this season to say we enjoy these things Yes, but we glory in the giver of these things. These things point us to Christ, and in him we celebrate. In him we rejoice. Our families are for him. Our traditions point us to him. It's all about him. Yes, we have a challenge, but man, we have an opportunity. You followed my ministry over the last several years, you might notice I am less of a critic of the church today than I was, you know, five, six, seven years ago for a lot of reasons. I think I'm just getting old and soft. But I do think one of the most damning indictments of our spiritual condition, I said this in a sermon last holiday season, is our inability to feast, our inability to celebrate, our inability to rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. In the tradition, Christmas Day was the beginning of a Christmas feast that lasted a long time, the 12 days of Christmas come after Christmas. We feast and feast and feast and feast for the Lord our God has come, but now we feast for a little bit and are just absolutely exhausted. My question is simple, how is our celebration of Christmas fundamentally different than our unbelieving neighbors? I do simply worry, if I'm honest, that oftentimes it's it's not. Now, I'm not gonna be taking attendance on Christmas Sunday morning. I'm not taking attendance this morning. One of my leadership flaws is that I am very uh, soft. Uh, You can ask Holly, so the class I teach at UC, one of my students spelled a country wrong on a geography quiz and he spelled it wrong. By spelled wrong, I mean he got the first two letters right and the other seven letters were wrong. And so I said, I, I put check and I just wrote spelling. And then the guy walked up to me and said, I didn't know the answer, so I put the brand of my contact lenses. <laughs> I said, oh.
1: Right. So listen,
0: man, I don't, I don't, care. I, I'm not going to judge. Oh, do you see who was here? Did you see who wasn't here? Do you see who's not going to serve that day? Do you see who is going to serve that day? No, that's not godly. It's not helpful. It's not good. But I owe it to you to be honest with you. And this is an area of great burden. Christmas Sunday morning I'll be here because there's nowhere else more fitting to be on the Lord's day to celebrate the Lord's coming than in the house of the Lord. For to us, a child has been born. So thank you for affording me that point of pastoral privilege. I wanted to say it earlier in the Advent season so as not to seem, you know, manipulative or cranky or any such thing, but to give you hope to remind you, to center your heart this season as you look at the next several weeks and plan out where you'll be and what you'll do. If you're traveling, drag your family to their, their church. Uh, if they don't want to go, if they refuse to go, say, let me read from Luke chapter 2 before we open these presents. The kids will love it. <laughs> be a voice crying out in the wilderness the Lord Christ has come, whatever you do. Our sermon today covers chapters 14 and 15 of the book of Judges. A lot of action and a lot we could think about. I will not and cannot cover it all, but we will try to get to the heart of the matter by considering three things. First, we will consider Samson the sinner. Second, we'll consider Israel in cultural captivity. Israel the cultural captives. And finally, we'll think about God the Savior. We'll consider Samson the sinner, Israel the cultural captive, and God the Savior. We'll see that God is working to save broken people through a broken man. I pray we learn something this morning of the Lord Jesus Christ and the life of faith. Look with me in Judges chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now go get her for me as my wife But his father and mother said to him Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives Or among all our people That you must go to take a wife from The uncircumcised Philistines But Samson
2: said
1: to his father
2: Philistine
0: woman She's apparently quite beautiful And he Immediately decides that this is going to be his wife He must marry this woman Now his parents are concerned Samson is supposed to drive out Philistines Not marry them Surely son, there's an Israelite woman you could marry They rightly see a problem in acting so impulsively And they're also concerned that Samson And the work God had called him to Would be hindered by marrying a Philistine woman Now, I don't want to take much time here, but it's worth briefly saying a word about what some in our day might call interracial marriage. Are they concerned that that he's going outside their people and we don't go outside with those people, we we keep it here in our own tribe? No, the concern is not she's not our kind, and the concern is simply that she worships a different God. Perhaps you've heard this idea in the New Testament of being unequally yoked. Now it is racist absurdity to say that you must keep marriage in your tribe. You can only marry someone of your ethnicity. It is spiritual absurdity to believe you can marry a non-believer and not jeopardize your own walk with the Lord. If you're married to someone who's not a Christian, Paul says, stay with them. Love them. Serve them. Be with them. Point them to Christ. Be patient with them in all you do. But the admonition of Scripture is clear. There's great danger in marrying outside the household of faith. I just want to make this quick point for two reasons. One, many of you are single and need wisdom. Who do I marry? Many of you are married to folks who are in different situations, and you want to you need to love them and care for them and pray for them and serve them. And a second reason is I think in our day there is a, a growing sort of nativist, racist impulse that is fundamentally unbiblical and, and must be repeated. Right in my own eyes. Samson is lustful and impulsive. This is a great start, by the way, right, for the savior of Israel. First couple of verses, and he's demanding this beautiful woman be married to him, even though she's a Philistine. Not only is he lustful and impulsive, but here in these early verses, he's already breaking his Nazarite vow. The vow that was to mark him off from everyone else To make him distinct for his service to God The Nazarite vow is just three things If you missed last week Don't cut your hair Don't drink any fruit of the vine, so alcohol juice, anything like that And don't touch anything dead And what you're doing in those three things Is sort of you're like almost pretending That's not the right way to say it But let's roll Pretending to be a priest Like you are marking yourself off for a set period of time For devotion to the Lord So let's look at verse 8 Chapter 14, verse 8. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion now this is odd to walk down the road and see the carcass of a lion there with honey inside of it, but it plays a very clear role in the story. Oh look, honey, sounds delicious. One problem, it's in a lion's carcass. To harvest that honey, you would have to touch something dead. And is he not under a vow to touch no dead thing? Yeah, he is, but did you see that honey? Samson is impulsive. He is carnal, whether it's an unchecked desire for sex or an overwhelming urge to have some honey. And he's lying. Look at the end of verse 9. He took some honey to his parents, but he did not tell them where it came from. Oh, he's impulsive, he's lying, and he's beginning to break his vows, and he will break them one by one, with the culmination, of course, of his hair being shorn. Shorn. Remember, he's not supposed to touch alcohol or anything from the vine. That's the second part of the vow. Look at verse 10. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. They throw what, we, what they called a mishte, a week-long A bachelor party of sorts that any reader would understand includes a lot of alcohol. So here we are, 10 verses into Samson's story, and we find him to be an impulsive lying vow breaker who cares more about his own desires than the will of God. And oh boy, this story is only just beginning. Allow me to summarize briefly some of what lies ahead. At this party, he tells the Philistines a riddle to mock them and take stuff from them to hustle them, if you will, which leads to betrayal, murder, and revenge. The story is wild. The people, the Philistines go to his wife, hey, get him to tell us that riddle answer. We got to find out. I can't tell him. He's not going to tell me. She goes back, tell me, tell me, tell me.
2: All
1: the waterworks Trying. goes in a fit of rage, kills a
0: bunch of people. Here's how it ends. Samson, in a fit of rage, goes back to his father's house, his father's house, his wife is given to his companion, the best man at this wedding feast, yikes. This is Samson. An astute reader of this book, the writer of Judges, has a simple message for, this too is Israel. This is Samson. And this too is Israel. Both were brought into the world through a miraculous birth. Old and barren Abram and Sarah birthed the nation of Israel, and Samson was born to Manoah and his barren wife. Samson is drawn to foreign women, and Israel is drawn to foreign gods.
1: Samson had... ...which was to set them
0: apart from the nations around them. Israel finds herself in cultural captivity. Let's consider Israel the cultural captive. In chapter 15, Samson goes back for his wife. Her father informs him that she's been married off, and he offers Samson her even more beautiful younger sister. Well, Samson is not happy about this, So naturally, he goes and gets 300 foxes and a whole bunch of torches. This is quite the mental image. He ties the foxes together by their tails with a torch. So fox, fox, I mean, getting these things to hold still is miraculous. I mean, I can't get my dog, Jenny the Chuggle, to stand still for a moment, right? And so he takes these two foxes and he puts them together and he ties them up with a torch and he sends them into the grain stacks. He sends them out into the olive orchards. My first thought when I read through this passage Early in the week to freshen up and study Was this sounds like a prank At Polka High School <laughs> Doesn't this sound like a senior prank Like yeah, the foxes in the school They're going to love that, you know When the Philistines find out Who has done this They kill Samson's wife and her father This starts a violent back and forth Between Samson and the Philistines And the Israelites are in The crosshairs Look with me in verse 9 of chapter 15 Chapter 15 verse 9 Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah And made a raid on Lehi And the men of Judah said Why have you come up against us? They said We have come up to bind Samson To do to him as he did to us Then 3,000 men of Judah Went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom And said to Samson Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you've done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I've done to them. Exactly what the Philistines said, notice. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said, no, we will only bind you and give you to their hands. We won't kill you. We surely will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. What a remarkable moment. In the text this is Samson, who do you think you are? Don't you know they're in charge? We are their subjects. Keep
1: them in. Because
0: they're comfortable with the status quo. From their point of view, nothing good can come from antagonizing the Philistines. They're not interested in salvation from the Philistines. That's too dangerous. In fact, this is the worst oppression yet because it probably doesn't feel like oppression. In fact, if you look closely at this story, last week's, this week's, and even next week's, we see nothing in the text about a cry for help. A cry for salvation. Let's look at verses 18 and 20. Samson finally prays, though he does so like an entitled brat. And then we learn something of his leadership in Israel. Chapter five, 15, verse 18. And he was very thirsty, and he called up on the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, And water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakori. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines, 20 years. Look at verse 20. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines, 20 years. All the other judges rose up with military might to overthrow some various Canaanite people but not Samson it's simply an accepted fact the Philistines rule over us not once in this narrative do we see the Israelites try to convince Samson who is clearly recognized as their leader especially in the 20 years he judges them to deliver them oh Samson is Israel embodied in Israel who is more than happy to marry into Philistine culture, adopt Philistine values, and worship Philistine God? Because after all, the Philistines are in charge, and self-advancement requires idolatry. The Israelites are on the verge, at this moment in their history, of extinction by assimilation. No one here looks good. Not Samson, not the Philistines, and not Israel. I think the captivity of Israel has something to teach us about the relationship between the church and her host culture. The church is embodied. that, That means it's always embedded in time and space, living in some human culture, with components it may affirm, and others it must challenge. That means the church, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in China, whether it's in Russia, whether it's in Canada, the church is always embedded amongst a particular people, in a particular place, at a particular time. And the cultures in which she finds herself will all have components that she can affirm, in China, in Russia, in America, and in Canada. And it will have components that she must challenge in China, in Russia, in America, in Canada. But in whatever culture she finds herself, the people of the living God must be distinct from those who worship false gods. This has been the plan since the beginning, that we would be a people for God's own possession, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called. You adulterous people Do you not know that friendship with the world Is enmity with God Therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world Makes himself an enemy of God This is what Jesus means When he speaks about being salt and light You don't light a, a candle to cover it You light it so that it will be lit You don't use salt Because it's not salty Like if salt were to lose its saltiness Then you would not use salt the salt is good because it's salty. The light is good because it's bright. So don't hide the light. don't makes you stick out because it's your distinctiveness that others see. The stuff that makes Christians stick out will make us heroes on some days and villains on others.
1: Needed. What
0: does the cultural captivity of Israel look like? Oh, in this passage, it looks like advancing in Philistine culture, worshiping Philistine gods, marrying Philistine women, living sensually and impulsively in all sorts of ways. What does the cultural captivity of the church look like? Oh, at great risk to myself, let me provide some examples. It looks like white Quote, conservative Christians who oppose civil rights and desegregation at every turn to uphold the present order of things, for surely an order that dehumanized and oppressed people of color, because it's just, quote, the way things were back then. It's the cultural captivity of the church who loses her prophetic voice. Or perhaps it looks like Western progressive Christians who export unbiblical gender ideology to the non-Western world in the name of progress, for surely our African and Asian brothers and sisters are just not enlightened enough to think like us, bright, Western, individualist, smart people. It looks like worshiping the idols of cultural respectability by offering a sacrifice of theological compromise. It may look like celebrating the birth of Christ in ways that have... Nothing to do with Christ It may look like being a nice church-going person With all sorts of hidden sins that are eating you alive It may look like selling your soul to be accepted By smart, rich, popular people I don't know, what are you saying, Mason? Simply this Be very wary That you have not just adopted the values of those around you Because it's convenient and expedient That's charge for every single one of us. Be very wary that you have not just adopted the values of those around you because it's convenient and expedient. It's easy and it will serve you well. Ideologically speaking, bad things happen when you try to out liberal your liberal friends or out-conservative your conservative friends. We are not. Captive to worldly ideologies, and we are not trapped in the debates the world has. We are bound by the Word of God. We are the people of the living God. We may be loved, we will often be hated, but no matter what, we will always be His. We may be loved, we will often be hated, but no matter what, we will always be His. It is a great challenge for the church to be faithful when she's popular. It is a great challenge for the church to be faithful when she's very, very unpopular. May God give us the faith and the strength to go through either season. How does God respond to Israel's comfortable captivity? Oh, with a whole lot of discomfort that leads to salvation. Samson is a sinner. Israel is happy enough in their captivity, but the grace of God will not be stopped. Enter God the Savior. Now, if you're reading through chapters 14 and 15, you might be a little bit unsettled. Curiously, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson at strange moments in the narrative. It can seem like, on a cursory reading, it can seem like God is sanctioning some of the evil things he does or even empowering some of the evil things Samson does. But the key to understanding what God is doing in these passages lies in chapter 14 verse 4. Look with me there in chapter 14 verse 4. Remember, Samson has found this woman he hopes to marry, and he demands to marry from among the Philistines. And his parents are wary, rightly. But this is what we would read when we keep reading. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Remember Samson thinking this woman is gorgeous and he must have her immediately. That's the lustful, impulsive way of Samson. So, is God's plan just thwarted from the start? Is it all over? Well, Samson's lustful... ...a wreck. And how in the world are we going to keep this thing... Going Listen, Samson is powerful As we'll see this week and especially next week But he's not powerful enough to stop the plan of God Because through Samson's sin God has found, verse 4 says An opportunity against the Philistines In other words, God will use the very worst of Samson To bring about Confrontation between the Israelites and the Philistines. Everything that happens in this text begins with this lustful, impulsive decision from Samson. God's going to use that sinful act, those sinful decisions, Samson's sinful heart, to bring about the confrontation between the Israelites and the Philistines that will be necessary to divide them and ultimately deliver. Israel You'll see the spirit of the Lord Come upon Samson before he does some Incredible superhuman act of strength That seems rash God will give Samson Superhuman strength because it is Necessary to create And then deepen this conflict Between Israel and the Philistines That will ultimately lead To Israel being ripped away From Philistine Idols Here's what we must understand together. When we see the spirit of the Lord working in Samson or through Samson, and we see Samson's sin, and we're holding these things up and saying, how can God use him in this way? God is not causing Samson's sin. Samson is the cause of it. God is not excusing Samson's sin. Samson is guilty of the sins that he commits. God is Redeeming Samson's sin. This is what that means. He is using it for his own purposes because that's just the kind of God that he is. Oh, friends, this points us to the ultimate deliverance brought through the cross of Jesus Christ, where God would use the worst sin possible to bring about salvation of the world. This is the message Peter preaches in Acts chapter 3. In a spirit-filled moment of boldness, Peter rises to preach and he says to the crowds in Acts 3, but you denied the Holy and Righteous One and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Here is the message Peter has for the Jewish crowd. You excused a murderer and you killed the author of life. The son of God died at your hands. This is the ultimate moment of rebellion. The creator dying at the hands of the creature in a sense. Jesus being killed and a guilty man walking free. Peter says you did this You killed him, you're responsible for your actions, you did it, it was your own will and volition but God raised him from the dead. It was the will of the Lord, the prophets foretold to crush him for not even the most wicked human heart nor the most wicked human act can stop the plan of God. For the Lord God was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. God was trying, to, God was working to deliver his people when they didn't even want delivered. But man, you might say, Samson is awful. I, I, can't, I can't get around that. That's tough for me to stomach. Yeah, he is awful. God will use Samson, no doubt. But that does not mean God is pleased with Samson. God will use Samson. But that does not mean God is pleased with Samson. This is profoundly important. and As we come to the end of this sermon, I, I hope you won't miss this. It is possible... to be really good at ministry, to know the right things, to say the right things, but to live a life that does not honor the Lord. If you're like, I don't know if it's possible to make that distinction, like you can't have gifts of the spirit, but not fruit of the spirit. I think that's what Paul means when he tells the church at Corinth this. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am what? Nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Oh, the Apostle Paul says, it's possible to be a martyr for your faith and gain nothing. It's possible to move mountains with your faith from a heart of pride and not love. It's possible to understand deep mysteries and have not love. This passage Points us to a God who saves us But does not need us Oh God will use you Every bit of you You actually cannot mess that up God will use you Hear this clearly though You can't mess up the will of God But you can miss out on the heart of God You can't mess up the will of God Nothing is going to happen that's going to make God say, oh, what am I going to do to bring salvation to the nations through the preaching of the gospel? Nothing is going to happen in your life that stops the plan of God from going forth. The plan of God will go forth because it's happening in his sovereignty and power and his will. Like, I can't mess that up. But I can miss out on his heart. It is possible to do stuff for God and not really know God. Worship team, come on up. As we close, I have just a simple diagnostic question for you. How is your heart? I'm not asking what your gifts are. I'm not asking how much you give to the church. I'm not asking how often you serve. I'm not asking how much... How often you attend. I'm not asking how many good things you do for people in your life. I'm asking how is your heart? Now, that question might be answered with another question, the second time I've done that today. Here's a diagnostic question to help you gauge the spiritual state of your heart How is your prayer life? Do you pray? What does that fellowship with the Lord look like in your heart? Now I ask this, not
1: to Be like a Samson,
0: bull rushing through life. The Spirit of God using us to bring about His plan, but us missing out on fellowship with Him the entire time. Us doing all this stuff for God and missing out on the heart of God. Missing the point. It's like Christmas without Christ. Because Samson the sinner savior, points to Jesus, the perfect savior. See, Samson breaks his vows. Jesus will never break his. Samson will triumph even though he fails and fails and fails. Jesus will triumph because he's faithful at every turn. of the Trinity, the Lord made flesh veiled in flesh the Godhead see hail incarnate deity Samson the sinner savior points to Jesus the perfect savior who stops at nothing to free us and give us eternal life what is eternal life you might ask I'll give the last word to Jesus in John 17 17 And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God. Father, there is much in your word for us to consider this morning. Lord, we've seen Samson, the sinner, who is not the kind of leader that satisfies us, not the kind of leader we would expect you to use. We've seen Israel who is in a sort of cultural captivity, an oppression that they don't even really see as an impression, oppression anymore. And through this imperfect person, through this deeply flawed person, you are saving and delivering a deeply flawed people. But one day, through a flawless person, through the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, you will bring about complete and total deliverance. Delivering us not from just Philistines around us, but from sin and idolatry within us. So Lord, help us repent of our sins help us see our own cultural captivity help us turn to you in faith and repentance and help us follow you remind us Lord that you will have your way that is not the question the question is simply will I miss out on it will I miss out on you Will I miss out on your heart? So, Lord, our prayer is simple. Don't let us miss out on your heart. Don't let us be people who do stuff for you, but don't really know you. Don't let us be people who live our days in cultural captivity not even thinking, to cry out to Jesus who stands ready to save us.
2: Amen.